This morning's sermon text comes from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 38. And two others also, who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. Father, nothing, nothing can we offer you this morning to to barter, to trade, or to buy mercy. That's not what mercy is. It's free or it's not mercy. And so, Father, have mercy upon us now freely to forgive us for our sins. Paul tells us that the reason Jesus was hanging there on the cross, according to Titus 2.14, is to redeem for himself a people freed from all iniquity and made zealous for every good deed. And so I pray that now the lamb slain would receive the reward of his suffering in this room. Forgiven sinners sold out to a lifetime of good deeds in the name of Jesus and for the glory of Christ. Lord, bring that about, I pray, through your Holy Spirit and through your word now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Notice in verse 34, the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive the people who are murdering me. Because they don't know what they're doing. Which raises a question, doesn't it? Why would you ask forgiveness for somebody who doesn't know what they're doing? Wouldn't we say, since they don't know what they're doing, they're not guilty and don't need forgiveness? Isn't it either or? Either you know what you're doing and you're guilty and you need forgiveness, or you don't know what you're doing and you're not guilty and you don't need forgiveness. How can it be both and? How can Jesus say... They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. What's the point? The point is this. They are guilty for not knowing what they're doing. It's not hard. 
That's the implication of this text. They need forgiveness because they're guilty for not knowing what they're doing. You only forgive the guilty. Jesus prays that they would be forgiven. So they're guilty. Which means, by the way, that all this contemporary psychological talk about struggling to forgive God is utterly wrong-headed. And if you really believe it, is blasphemous. We won't talk like that here. We will never speak as though God were guilty. Father, forgive them means they're guilty. They don't know what they're doing means they're guilty for not knowing what they're doing. In other words, here are all these Gentiles and all these Jewish people together killing the Son of God, the sin-bearing Messiah, and the most innocent, most loving man who ever existed. And the evidence that they're doing it is so clear, they're guilty. Now, here in this room this morning, there are people joining in, as we all have, in killing Jesus. Sin brought Jesus to the cross. This is the sweetest thing he ever said. I mean, it's the most painful, horrible thing he ever said and the most sweet and precious thing he ever said. All in one sentence, coming out of his mouth at the same time as he hung on the cross. He said, Father, they're guilty. That's why I'm here. I wouldn't be here if there was nobody to forgive. So I'm here for them dying to bear the weight of their sin. Now I'm going to pray for them now. You would open their eyes and convict them of their guilty ignorance of what they're doing. And show them their great need and humble them and bring them to faith and repentance so that they might receive the forgiveness I'm ready to pour on them that I'm purchasing for them right now as I hang on the cross. Oh God, let it flow. Let it flow. So do you hear what's happening in that one sentence? Out of his mouth is coming the worst indictment he ever pronounced on us. Guilty. You need, everybody in this room needs forgiveness. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And out of his mouth at the same time comes, do it, forgive them. So here we are this morning and I want to make sure at the outset that God sounds this note across this full room. You're all guilty. And I love you. And my son is here dying in order that I might answer his prayer for you. My son prayed for you. Father, forgive them.
for their guilt. So let there settle over this room right now those two terrible and wonderful things. We are guilty, and we, if we would just receive it, are forgiven. He bought it. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can only say, he prayed for me. He offers it to me. He bore my guilt. I'll have him and all that he is for me on the cross and in the resurrection. Now, that's the note we must strike as we talk about my next point. Abortion. This is the way it is with abortion. The evidence for his messiahship, his divinity, his being innocent and loving and not worthy of death, was so pervasive they were guilty for not knowing what they were doing. And the word over America, not just America, but Russia, and other lands, is, Father, in regard to abortion, forgive them because... And then I have to stop because I don't think it's true that we don't know what we're doing. I think we know exactly what we're doing. But now, because of this text, I have the liberty to say, whether we know what we're doing or not, we're guilty. Because we ought to know what we're doing. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Do we know what we're doing in abortion? We do know what we're doing. Ten reasons. But before I give you those, it might be fair to give you the ten things that I wrote down for how we know Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and not worthy of death. One, his supernatural healings. Two, his authority over nature. Three, his power over demons. Four, his compassion for outcasts and lepers and his association with the lowly. Five, his simplicity of life and indifference to wealth. Six, his unparalleled wisdom and his seeing right through hypocrisy. Seven, his indifference to human praise and his devotion to the good of others. Eight, his living for the glory of God. Nine, his willingness to die for others. And ten, his claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God, so that either he's a liar or he's insane or he's true. So everybody in this room has to make a decision here about Jesus. The evidence abounds. And that's why Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they're guilty for not knowing what they do. They should know. There's enough evidence. So it is with abortion. So it is with abortion. And let me say it again, loud and clear. There are numerous women in this room who've had abortions. I know some of them, others I don't know. 
There are numerous men who pushed them to have abortions. There are parents in this room who pushed to have their grandchildren eliminated. And the guilt in this room right now is very great. And not just for abortion, of course, but in all of us. So let the note be sounded again, and I'll end on it, and I'll refer to it over and over again. Our Lord Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They should know what they're doing. They should know what they're doing, and they don't know what they're doing, and they're guilty for not knowing what they're doing. Father, have mercy upon them. So mercy is the note struck here. You're going to hear my voice rise, because I cannot resist the lifting of my voice over this issue. And it will, at times in the next 20 minutes, sound like I'm angry. And I am, but I'm not angry at any of you. Let the note be sounded. There's mercy in this room. There's forgiveness in this room, all right? Is that clear? It is so precious that out of his mouth came our indictment and out of his mouth came our forgiveness. And in his body, he was purchasing it all. That's why I chose that verse. Now, with regard to abortion, I'm going to argue for the next few minutes ten reasons why we know what we're doing. We know what we're doing. And we are guilty Either aborting, pushing people to abort, being indifferent to abortion, saying abortion is somebody else's issue, not mine. Number one. We know what we are doing in taking the lives of unborn children because 27 states have fetal homicide laws, including Minnesota. That is... In 27 states, including our own, we treat the unborn fetus as a person protected under law and penalize with very severe penalties those who willfully take the life of the unborn. For example, in 1987, a 16-year-old girl, six and a half months pregnant with her boyfriend, made a suicide pact, went into the woods here in Minnesota, And she shot herself with a 34, and uh, the boy changed his mind. Covered her over with brush. The baby died. She died. And he was found. He confessed what happened. And uh, he was sentenced, and the verdict was upheld in 1991 under two counts, one assisting in a suicide and the other under the four-year-old fetal homicide law, which carried a much severer penalty than the assisting in the suicide. In the newspaper, when that was reported back in the late 80s, there was a sentence that leaped off, and I consider it one of the most amazing sentences I've ever read. It's not the newspaper's problem here. This is just reality. It's the amazing reality that we live in in America. The newspaper said, The law makes it murder to kill an embryo or a fetus intentionally, except in cases of abortion. Strike you as odd sentence? That's a strange reality. 
The law makes it murder to kill an embryo or a fetus intentionally, except in cases of abortion. Now think about that for a moment. What's the basis of the difference between legal taking of the life of the unborn in the case of abortion and illegal taking of the life of the unborn in the case of a fetal homicide. What, what's the difference? You got it in your head? Got the answer? It's really plain what the difference is. Our culture touts the difference. The difference is this. Taking the life of, of the unborn is illegal if the mother doesn't want you to. And taking the life of the unborn is legal if she wants you to. Now think about the implication of that. The implication of that is this. Fetuses are treated as human with rights when the stronger wants them to be treated that way. And fetuses are treated as non-human with no rights when the stronger wants them to be treated that way. Now think about that. There's a name for that. It's called anarchy. It's got other names. Now right here I need to link up last Sunday's message with this Sunday's message. We're talking about racial justice last week. We're talking about justice for the unborn this week. And I know that some of you went away with the apparently peculiar notion that I gave you a choice between caring about the one or the other. You can't be a Wilberforce for both. That's what I meant. If you think that racial injustice can be a negligible matter for you and concern for the unborn can be a negligible matter for you. You missed it. So let that be heard very clearly. And here's the connection. If you remove the grounds of justice from the intrinsic personhood of the human and put it in the will of the powerful, nobody is safe. Not Jews in Nazi Germany, not black slaves in South Carolina, and not the unborn in the womb. If you allow justice to be defined as the will of the strong, nobody is safe. If you allow the definition of humanity humanness and personhood to reside in whether a strong person wants you to be treated that way or not, you have no safety anywhere. It might be your Jewishness, it might be your color, it might be your age. These two issues are at root the same issue. Racial justice and justice for the unborn are about personhood. And it's accompanying rights and responsibilities. And if the definition of personhood is removed from intrinsic God-given qualities in humans and put in the will of the powerful, 
What you have is totalitarianism in minute becoming big. Because the only way you can manage anarchy, where everyone does what is right in his own eyes, is to have one man rise up and say, what everybody does in my eyes is what will be done right. Totalitarian is the only solution to anarchy where there isn't a broad consensus of intrinsic humanness. And I would, of course, as a Christian, add, rooted in being created by God in his own image. But I don't even think I have to have your consensus on that one in order for everybody to see what would become of us if the schizophrenia of fetal homicide laws and abortion continue. That's number one. The others are shorter. Number two, we know what we are doing because of the inconsistency of doing fetal surgery on a baby in the womb while his cousin at the same stage of development is being killed down the hall. The evidence is mounting on all hands that the fetus is a patient. The mom is not the only patient. The fetus is a patient. The fetus can be medicated. The fetus can be treated. The fetus can be done surgery on. The fetus can be studied. Steve Calvin, one of my favorite doctors in the Twin Cities, every year he writes an editorial. It was in two Sundays ago. It was on the 13th. You can go to the website and call it up. And... Uh, Steve is just so strong, and he's so wise, and he's so level-headed, and he's one of the main neonatal specialists down at Abbott Northwestern. He knows everything there is to know about these little babies from conception to when he handles most of them, which is way too early. And he knows everything. He writes about this in his editorial two weeks ago. He spoke about the new research, and he's only talking from the basis of research here that most people ignore, of the medical risks of abortion now seen more clearly in breast cancer and early pregnancies and complicated pregnancies that follow. That's what he was talking about. But the sentence I wrote down here is from a, a paper several years ago in which he said, there is an inescapable schizophrenia in aborting a Perfectly normal 22-week-old fetus while at the same hospital performing intrauterine surgery on its cousin, close quote. He knows all about it, and it is a schizophrenia. We know what we're doing. We know what we're doing. Number three, we know what we're doing because the size of a person is irrelevant to deciding their humanity. My five-foot-eight 16-year-old, once upon a time, had no more right to life than my little 23-inch-old daughter as she nestled in her mother's arms. And everybody knows that. Size is irrelevant, whether it's 5 foot 8, 23 inches, or 1 inch. Size does not count morally in personhood. Four, we know what we're doing because developed reasoning powers are not the criterion of personhood. Little one-week-old infant nursing at his mother's breast can't think a thought that anybody else could understand, can't communicate. He's pre-rational. But just leave him alone. Leave him alone at his mother's breast. And he'll be able to read in five years. 
and be able to think and be able to love. Just leave him alone. And just move him back now five months and he still can't think. And the same principle holds. Leave him alone. Leave him where he belongs. And he'll become what he's supposed to become in rationality. Now, we don't threaten this little one-week-old baby. We'd consider that murder and infanticide. Everybody would. So reasoning powers is not the issue. We know what we're doing. Try to bring up these arguments. uh, We know what we're doing. Number five, we know what we're doing because... In all other areas of life, environment or location has no bearing on a person's right to life. Scott Klusendorf, who was here to lecture last year, wrote, How does a simple journey down a seven-inch birth canal suddenly transform the essential nature of the fetus from person to, from non-person to person? It doesn't. We're guilty. We know what we're doing. We can't argue from location. Six, we know what we're doing because we consider persons on, es- on respirators and dialysis as human beings whose lives are precious and to be protected. And I point out respirators and dialysis because the argument is so often given that these little babies are part of their mother. And what they mean is they're totally, utterly dependent on their mother. For what? Oxygen, food, and the removal of toxins from their body. No count. When a person who's been born depends on a machine or another person to get the toxins out of their body through dialysis, or to provide them food with a feeding tube, or... Or, or, we know what we're doing, Father. We know what we're doing. Forgive us. Seven, we know what we're doing because we know that the genetic makeup of a human is different from all other creatures. And from the moment of conception, the human code is perfect and complete and unique from the beginning. Left alone, they will Become just like you. One of the young women in the prayer meeting at 715 this morning said, I was the eighth child that my parents gave birth and they counseled my mother. My father had just lost his job and they counseled my mother at the hospital. It's wrong of you to keep this baby. Financially wrong. It's, it's wrong for your own mental health. It's wrong for the other kids. And she just said to us, I'm so glad my mama didn't listen to them. Just leave them alone. And they become just like you. We know what we're doing. Number eight, we know what we are doing because we know that at eight weeks of gestation, the organs are all present. The brain is functioning, the heart is pumping, the liver is making blood, kidneys are cleaning the fluids, finger has a print, and all abortions almost happen after that. There's a little booklet handed out to the young women in our high schools in Minneapolis with sentences on abortion. And I got those booklets and I read them. And, and they said, 
If you plan to get an abortion, be sure to wait until at least the sixth week, and then it's best before the twelfth week, and that's the safest time. So you're counseling these young women, don't get it too early. Make sure that, you know, whatever appropriate is supposed to happen. So almost all abortions happen between the eighth and the twelfth week. Then there's a lot after that, but not nearly as many. And so you can know, we do know what we're doing. And not to know is willful ignorance right now. You can go to the web right now and know everything there is to know. Anything you want to know, type it in. This afternoon, type in fetal homicide law. You will read about every law in every state and all the cases you want to know. Type in partial birth abortion. Type in anything you want to know about and you can have everything there is to know with pictures. Not to know is guilt. We know what we are doing. Number nine, we know what we're doing because of the marvel of ultrasound. It's given a window on the womb, getting better all the time, and we see them now at eight weeks sucking their thumb and recoiling from pricking and responding to sound. And then there are all these amazing books by Nielsen, who's taken photography. I don't know how in the world he does it, but he's got pictures at every stage, big color photographs in Life magazine and elsewhere. And you look at them and you show a little baby these pictures and they say, that's a baby. And then you hear the pro-choice people saying with indignation and anger in their voices, these pictures, these pictures. And with bitterness, I heard this sentence one time. You can't settle a major national moral crisis with pictures. And, and, of course, that's a true sentence. That's true. Nobody's trying to. All we're saying is this. They're significant. They're a piece. Pictures, that is, seeing eyes. Eyes are significant in making choices. You guys, you go hunting. I don't know for any women here who go hunting. You go hunting, you shoot deer, not men. And what if you were to say to me, how am I supposed to know the difference? I said, well, guy's going to be walking on two feet probably. He's going to be clothed. His face shapes are like yours. And the deer have four legs and they walk on those four legs and their their head shape different. They have fur all over their body. And he says, oh, pictures, pictures, eyes, they don't count. They count. This is morally relevant. You can spot the difference between a child and a monkey. You can spot the difference. Pictures matter. They're not the whole thing, and they don't settle the issue. What what you see swimming in the womb, sucking his thumb, recoiling from the prick, Responding to sound matters. Every mom knows it. Who's willing, willing to look. Number ten. Lastly, we know what we're doing because we know the principle of justice. That when two legitimate rights conflict, the right that preserves the highest value prevails. We can point to this everywhere in our society. A woman has a right not to be pregnant. Anybody that forces a woman to be pregnant, we call it rape or some other names, anybody that forces a woman to get pregnant is committing a very 
serious felony crime against her. She has a right not to be pregnant. And a baby has a right not to be killed. So now we have a pregnant woman and a baby. And the two rights are now at odds with one another. She's feeling, I've got a right not to be pregnant. And this baby, if it could talk, would be feeling, I've got a right not to be killed. Now, what are we going to do with competing legitimate rights? Well, we do the same thing we do everywhere. Through proper legislative means, we decide which rights hold sway. Nobody in this room is allowed to drive 100 miles an hour down 11th Avenue. Thank you. I've got a little girl. She plays there. Lots of people, some of them not all together there, are walking back and forth between SA and the credit union across the street. You are not allowed. We will take away your driver's license and put you in jail if you insist on driving 100 miles an hour down 11th Avenue. And you say, I have a right to drive any speed I want to. I'm a free human being. I have a will of my own. And we say, well, you do have a right to go any speed you want, provided nobody else comes into the picture. Well, we've decided as a society, there are other people in the picture. And you're just going to have to submit to our driving speed limits. We do that in hundreds of areas. We play off right against right. And you know what's being played off right there? A couple of motives for going 100 miles an hour. One, and the main one, fun. Second one, get there on time. Because I'm late. That's one. So you get two rights. Right to be on time, right to have fun. Then you got another right. The right not to be plastered in an intersection. Now, when the culture weighs these two off, fun and being on time against being killed in an intersection, they say, this is clear. We're going to limit your speed. Now, we know what is clear in regard to a life of an unborn person and the, and I will admit, I'm not making light of this. I will say pain or psychological trauma. I, I don't want to blow this off as though an unwanted, unexpected, rape-produced or unplanned pregnancy is a small, negligible thing. I'm not saying that. Don't hear me saying that. I'm saying that between these two painful choices, we know what's right. And the whole church, indeed the whole culture in the last 15 years has moved towards that mother. I hardly hear any pro-choice people saying anymore, you bunch of middle-aged, white, no-good men, all you ever think about is the unborn, you don't care about the women, you don't care about the born kids, blah, blah, blah. Nobody's saying that anymore. You know why? Because the massive help that has been brought to bear for women in crisis pregnancies before, during, after, right on, post-abortion, from all kinds of things. There are ministries everywhere because the pro-life movement is so pro-woman and so pro-child and so pro-helping. Nobody can talk like that anymore. We just know what we're doing. And we've got to make some tough choices, and we'll choose for life, not the alleviation of the pain or the inconvenience or the trauma of staying pregnant and then either keeping the child with all the help you need 
or letting the child be adopted into a family that's ready to spare the pain of whatever brought about the unwantedness of the pregnancy. So I close. There are a hundred more reasons why not to take the life of the unborn. You could get my message from Tuesday that I delivered here in this room for half an hour. It's it's online at Desiring God. And see the biblical reasons that I have not made much of this morning. I said two weeks ago, I pray that we'll plant a church this year, plant a passion, and that it will be a strong, God-centered, Christ-exalting, mission-mobilizing, Bible-saturated, soul-winning, justice-pursuing church. And now let us hear that, justice-pursuing, racial justice, justice for the unborn. Let us hear that, I close, under this glorious word, Father, forgive Bethlehem. They know what they're doing. So let's be honest and admit it. Let's receive forgiveness. Let's be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And then, oh, may God make you coronary, Wilberforce-like, marathon Christians in this and last week's cause. Let's pray. Oh God, please let people receive forgiveness in this room right now. Let unbelievers perhaps who came to visit this morning receive Jesus and his forgiveness for the first time and let believers, especially those who've been involved in abortion, feel afresh the washing of the dying Son of God flow over them, saying, yes, it was terrible, and no, it does not have to ruin your life. I'm for you and not against you. Lord, just pour out forgiveness and pour out healing and pour in strength for the cause, I pray. Stand for benediction. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Believing that wonderful cross-spoken promise that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. And all the people said, Amen.